Hello from Spearfish, South Dakota. It's the Black Hills Information Security Podcast. Today's episode is a guest presentation by our sister company, Active Countermeasures. To see the slides and notes from this webcast, visit activecountermeasures.com. Thanks for listening to Threat Beaconing with Active Countermeasures COO, Chris Brenton, and your host, me, Sierra. Enjoy! Hello, attendees. Thank you for joining us. It's awesome to have you guys on. Um, I think this is like the third webcast for ACM. Kind of exciting. Yeah, yeah that it is. I think first one without John. It is. It is the first one without John. Ooh, a momentous yes. step. So we should, should we start or just kind of keep chatting? <laughs> well, I try to keep the pre-show yimmer yammer for the people that show up early and want it. And then you guys that join like right at 11, I figure like you're here for like, let's get to business. We're not yeah, going to waste get right time. To We're going to do this. I'm Sierra. <clears throat> And I'm here on this Active Countermeasures webcast. Thank you for joining. And we're here with Chris Brenton, who's awesome and super talented and knows all the things. So, yay. Yay. Let you take it away. Thank you. So, yeah, as we uh, started chatting about uh, a little bit earlier, um, I wanted to do this because, oh my God, there's just not enough information out there on doing beacon analysis. And it's something that I think is just really important to threat hunting in general. Let's just jump right into it. People get broken into. Uh, we're getting broken into a lot. It's pretty stomach at this point. I will say there is uh, some good light out there, which is if you look at on the average days that says 191 days to identify a breach took place, that used to be over a year. Um, it also used to be an, a far overwhelming majority of breaches were identified externally, meaning someone would drop you an email and say, hey, so one of your boxes keeps trying to break into me. What's up with that? And you'd go look and realize, oh, wait, my box has been compromised. This is a bad thing. Um, we're actually starting to catch that stuff ourselves now, which is really good. So what is threat hunting? I know we think we know what this is, but I honestly kind of feel like we're still kind of figuring this one out. By that I mean um, what a lot of folks identify as being threat hunting, I think is actually threat hunting, incident handling, and forensics altogether. Uh, we need to better tightly define what threat hunting is as a service. Uh, part of the reason is just a lot of people getting burnt out on it. Uh, which is easy to do if you've got you know hundreds, thousands of systems you're trying to keep track of. And every time you think you see something interesting, you go all the way down the rabbit hole with it. It's really hard to ever feel like you get all the way through. To me, threat hunting has one goal. And that goal is to look at every single system on your network, regardless of whether it's a desktop, a server, an appliance, an internet, a thing device, it doesn't matter. Anything with an IP address, look at every single one of them and answer one easier to say than do question, uh, is that system compromised, yes or no? And as you go through that list, that's your disposition. Is it compromised? No, okay, good. I might create a white list or do something else. Is it compromised? Yes, okay, I gotta kick off my incident handling process and kick it on from there. From a threat hunting perspective, I don't want to say you shouldn't care because you, you obviously need to if people are breaking into your network, but you kind of don't. Is it compromised or not? The true goal is to just arrive at that question. So I had a, uh, I've got a blog entry I've done on this. Um, I've got a link for it down in the bottom of the uh, slide here. Also, at the end of this, uh, we're going to post these slides up to our blog on 
active countermeasures, so everybody can grab a copy of them, including all the links if they want them. So why threat hunt the network? <laughs> because reading system logs are hard. Yeah, so uh, one of the other things in my past was I'm the one who created the, um, the first log analysis class for SANS. So that was probably back 2001, 2002. And I was a real system log person, you know, was convinced that, you know, Splunk had just come out. That was really cool. There was a lot of good stuff going on in the space. And I was really convinced you can, you can threat hunt this stuff using logs. And I think after about a year or two, I just realized, oh my God, this is just such a waste. In other words, um, when folks come in to get a demo for AI Hunter, one of the things we ask them is, do you threat hunt your network? And a lot of folks say yes. And then we say, okay, how do you threat hunt your network? And most of the time it's we review system logs. Uh, let's talk about that a little bit because there's a lot of problems with it. Number one is logs don't just show security stuff, right? There's a lot of stuff in there we don't care about. There's a lot of things that have more to do with you know, performance or bugs or things that really aren't security related. So if you think about centralizing all your logs into one location and trying to go through that, there's a ton of cruff you got to try and sort through to figure out what's actually useful to me. The other issue is that logs are different. Syslog is awesome from the perspective that somebody wrote it in an afternoon back in 1988 to use on their own network and that was it. And we basically kind of looked at that and said, meh, this works, let's make an RFC out of it and we're stuck with that. Uh, but there's no way to like clearly indicate this is a security related event, this is not. So you end up going through everything. There's also very little structure to what an error message should look like. So if you, you know, kind of figure out how to go through your Apache logs, Go look at an Nginx system and they're totally different. You know, all that work you've done up front for Apache doesn't apply to Nginx, you're back to redefending the wheel. Oh my God, it gets worse if you change the platform too. So we've got a ton of data that has nothing to do with what we want that we gotta try and get out of the way and then figure out the log entries that are there. And oh, by the way, this assumes everything's logging to our centralized server. Every environment I've been in has stuff that's not. IP cameras, you know, bring your own devices, Internet of Things devices, the local printer may not be doing it. If any of those gets whacked, you're going to have zero log entries to tell you something bad happened. Further, even if you do have the log entries, part of, you know, what makes malware malware is the attacker goes to great lengths to hide their fingerprint on that system. So if I break into your Windows box and you're doing full logging, I can guarantee you, you're not going to get a log entry that tells me you're, I'm on your system. Um, that's that's part of the mojo of what you're doing. You just you make sure there's no record trail. So to say I'm going to review system logs to threat hunt, to me kind of says I'm going to spend an awful lot of time for very little value. Now let's spin that around and let's look at the network side. The network side for me kind of levels that playing field. It's the great equalizer. Everybody's got to talk on the network. So if I'm focused on the network, my problem of things looking different goes away because IP is just a bunch of RFC specifications and everybody has to meet them with the communications they're doing. If they don't, hey, that makes them stick out even more, right? So it makes it a whole lot easier to go in and start even looking for this stuff. And if it's, you know, Windows or Linux, it doesn't matter. It's still IP. That's my still my common denominator. Further, everything's going to use it. 
In other words, if somebody brings in a device from their house that's infected with malware and it starts connecting out over the internet, you'll see that. You don't have to point it at a logging server or anything else. You're still going to see that traffic. So why threat hunt the network? Because that's the only place you have full visibility. It's the only place you're really on equal footing with the bad guys. It's the only way you're going to spend more time finding things to worry about versus actually just sorting through the junk. So. What's a beacon analysis? Well, we'll get into how a beacon works in just a little bit. But basically for now, let's kind of leave it at, this is when malware calls home. In other words, uh, I do a social engineering attack against a site. Maybe it's over email or I get you to click something or whatever. I get you to install malware on your desktop. The first thing I got to do is I got to figure out how to get back to my command and control server. That's going to go out over the network. It's going to be IP compliant. Typically, these call home and check to see if there's any marching orders for me, and if there's not, I'll, I'll sleep for a while and then go back and try it again. You can try and do the connection persistently, and I have seen those. However, they're very rare. You know, if you think about most attackers are kind of focused on building the largest bot army they can. So if I've got 100,000 plus systems, I can't have 100,000 plus systems trying to hold open a permanent session with a command and control server. So you're going to make the box roll over and play dead. It'd be nice if they tried because then they'll kill their own server, but it usually doesn't work that way. If, however, you're being targeted because someone's been hired to extract information from your network or maybe a nation state situation, typically five, six systems internally that have been compromised is enough for me to get access to the whole network. Now you can start doing persistent connections. So for malware to use a persistent connection would be a way to avoid a beacon analysis and having it show up there. But there's an easy way to catch that stuff too. Hey, who's holding open connections the longest going out to the internet? If I see an internal host holding open a connection to Guangzhou, China for the last 70 hours, and I don't have a field office in Guangzhou, China, that tells me, yeah, that may be something worth going in and taking a look at. So the persistence is pretty easy to catch. The beacons, those become a little bit harder. Now this assumes it's all going out over the internet. You know, a lot of folks might step up, oh, well, yeah, but if I, you know, a device that has a MiFi connection and I won't go over the internet, you'll never catch my beacon. Okay, my response to that is if I can get into your, physically access your network and plug in a MiFi device and, and compromise you that way instead, your problem isn't your internet connection. Your problem is your physical security. You need to deal with that first. So beaconing rules. I like to kind of pull this out because, oh my God, there are beacon trolls. Um, I didn't think this was possible, but yep, go to Reddit, there's a ton of them. Beacon trolls are basically the folks that no matter what you come up with for a technique to try and catch this, they will come up with a way to say, oh, I could get around that, I could do this. Uh, one of my favorites was somebody saying, oh, I'll just vary my beacon timing up to five days and you'd never catch me doing a beacon analysis. Okay, wait a minute. There needs to be some ground rules here. In other words, if the goal is to just strictly fly under the radar of a beacon analysis, yeah, you could do stuff like that. But think about what this is for. This is a covert communication channel to malware I've put on your network to execute on some goal. Maybe that's steal information off the local environment or whatever that needs to be. That needs to be a functional backdoor. If I issue a command and it takes five days for me to get a response back to find out. And actually it might take five days just for my command to execute. It might be another five days before I actually get the response back. That's not a functional backdoor. 
In other words, sure, that'll avoid the beacon detection, but I'm probably going to find a signature to match on the malware long before I can run more than one or two commands on that system. So, you know, when you start looking at how can someone mess with the beacon signal to fly under the radar, keep in mind that there's one overarching goal here, which is it has to be functional malware. And once you start playing in, in that, the rules are tight enough that we can usually go in and start finding this stuff. If you do run into a situation where you say, oh, hey, if I do this, nobody seems to be looking for that, awesome. Now figure out how to fix it, help everybody out, which is where Rita came from, which is one of the tools we're going to talk about today. That was kind of John Strand's way of saying, I don't want to be, I don't want to just complain about this. I want to actually provide a solution. So for the folks that aren't aware how a beacon actually works, internal system gets compromised. You can see that at the bottom of the screen. And it just calls home to a command and control server. And it'll do that on some sort of repetitive basis. That command and control server, that think of that as almost middleware between the attacker and the compromised systems themselves. The attacker will submit a command to the command and control server. Hey, grab all the local Excel spreadsheets or you know whatever the case may be. And then the next time that box checks in and says, hey, do you have anything for me to do? The CNC server hands off that command, grab all the local spreadsheets. And it says, okay, goes off and grabs them, sends that back out as part of that channel. So there's this repeating pattern that we're talking about here, where these things will go in and they'll call home. Now, it doesn't have to be a direct connection. Uh, one of the sneakier ones uses DNS. So in this case, rather than doing a direct connection to the command and control server, my local system is only talking to the local resolver. And it's looking up things, in this case here, a domain called evil.com. The at command and control server is actually the authoritative DNS server for evil.com. So when my compromise system does a lookup on a host name that usually looks as convoluted as what you see on the screen here, that's an indicator to the CNC server of which system is it and it's actually in a compromised state and it'll go back and it'll hand back marching orders from it there. And here's what they may look like. So our first packet is a DNS query that's gone out for a text record for some for this convoluted name here, starting with 6D, ending with FD. So we're looking up this host name, which is clearly not human generated. And what comes back, the interesting bit, is just this part of it right here. That's the response from the command and control server telling it what to do. There's a very small pattern to go and look at. Also looking at this, it should be clear that you can't statically match on this. In other words, I can't take an intrusion detection system and write a signature that'll match this all the time because I can use random names for all of my hosts, so there's no direct pattern to go in and match on. And as far as the data and the payload, I can encrypt it, I can obfuscate it, it'll make it really hard to go in and kind of tag on that. Beyond that, there's legitimate DNS headers here. So even if I go in and say, I'm only gonna, uh, I'm gonna check to make sure this is a legitimate DNS header and DNS response, that's here. That isn't gonna help you out. So getting into the time analysis, looking how this, this thing is communicating, that's the way to go in and try and tag this stuff. So finding beacons and packet captures, where do we even start with this? The first thing is the more data, the better. Meaning that the longer the period of time I can do an analysis over, like at least a day, the better off I'm going to be. If I have something beaconing home, let's say once per hour, 24 hour chunk of data gives me 24 opportunities to, to spot that there is a you know beacon-like behavior taking place. 
If, however, I'm only looking at one hour of data, I might have one, maybe zero instances of a beacon signal, and now it's just going to mix in with everything else. So you got to have a big, huge data set to work with. Once you have that big, huge data set, the next thing you want to do is start breaking out communication pairs. So start with a internal system, look at everybody you talk to out on the internet, and break those out into unique files, or at least sort them in a way that you can get to them individually as you go through. Then what you want to do is you want to go in and look for patterns of things like repetitive timing or repetitive packet size. So like I said, these things may call home, you know, once per minute, once per second, once per hour. It's going to vary depending upon what the attacker set up. It's that pattern I want to go in and take a look for. Now, it might not be exact. In other words, I may go in and I may say beacon uh, once a minute plus or minus 15 seconds. So that means from one, from the first packet in a beacon to the first packet in the next beacon, that time interval might be anywhere from 45 seconds to a minute and 15 seconds. That's not going to be a statistically noticeable, at least not easily, pattern that's taking place. However, go in and do a cohort analysis, or here I refer to it as a time bucket analysis, and that stuff starts to stick out. In other words, if I say, okay, rather than analyzing the time from one beacon to the next, I'm gonna do that for an hour's period of time and combine those together and then do it for the next hour period of time, combine those together and then compare those to each other. What's nice about that is that helps to start eliminating some of the noise from the signal being varied. In other words, over a 24-hour period of time, I'm probably going to have about as many times that I'm beaconing less than once per minute as I am more than once per minute. So it's all going to kind of average out at a one-minute interval anyway. Uh, look at it on a graph, and it ends up looking like a bell curve. Most things are right around that one-minute mark, and then I'll see them kind of falling off to you know less and less frequency as I go through. You can also do the same type of thing with the amount of data transferred in a session. So if I'm sending a command, hey, do you have anything for me to do, and the response back is, nope, go back into sleep mode, that's a fixed command set. That's going to be a fixed size, regardless of whether it's encrypted or obfuscated or plain text or whatever. I can go in and I can look for that pattern. Now, it's possible someone could go through and pad it meaning rather than just sending the command set, they send the command set plus junk at the end that's just padding in order to try and hide that repeating pattern. Couple things here. One is you can only pad so much. By that I mean you could say, all right, I'm gonna add you know, a meg to each session to you know, plus or minus 500K to try and hide this. Well, the problem you run into there is if I'm beaconing once per minute and I'm transferring a meg every time, do the math. That's all of a sudden going to very quickly show up as like one of the top five communicating systems in my network. So not only will the security people notice that, the IT people will notice that because now you're using up all the bandwidth. So I can't add a ton of padding onto the end. So I need to be careful how much actually gets added. So it ends up being something very small or something much smaller than that. But again, go in and do a cohort analysis, go in, break it out into one hour, two hour increments, and now that plus or minus averages itself out again, I now end up with a nice little flat line between them. Now, how to go through and extract this information out, uh, I actually did a blog entry on doing this with T-Shark. 
I don't like doing this manually. I love the fact that we have reader and I'm going to go through and I'm going to cover that. But if anybody actually wants to go in and kind of play with this stuff manually, just because, hey, it's kind of cool, uh, that blog entry kind of talks you through that whole process. Chris, Nathaniel had a question. He said, should okay. sign be established? And if so, how often? So yes and no. So this actually, what you're seeing on the screen here, this is kind of your baseline. In other words, when you talk about what's a normal system look like when it's communicating, it kind of looks like this. So our top graph here is showing us how frequently was this thing communicating every one hour period of time. And you can see sometimes there's a lot, sometimes there's nothing. That's indicative of just normal internet behavior. This one over on the right is kind of looking at how much data passed back and forth between those sessions. And again, that's gonna change over time. So our baseline is always the same. It's that randomness that is communicating to the internet. I mean, even if you tried to only do your Google searches once per hour, you're still gonna end up with a variation that kind of looks similar to this. What we're looking for is that obvious machine type communication that is it's happening on a regular basis. Now, uh, there's a great, if you want to go in and see what I mean and get yourself a trace to see what's a beacon look like and I want to be able to play around with it, here's a real easy packet filter to use. Go out and grab all traffic going to UDP 123. That'll be all your NTP traffic. NTP is a beacon. Let's see, uh, Windows systems beacon every 30 seconds to check their time. Uh, Red Hat, I believe, is every 20 minutes. Ubuntu is every... 15 minutes, yeah, the 15, 20, one or the other for Red Hat and Ubuntu. Um, but you'll see that. So run a packet capture, grab UDP 123 traffic, let it run for a couple of hours, take a look into that packet, and you'll see, hey, there's a very you know indicated time interval here. Now, it's pretty easy to tag the services that do this normally, like NTP. It's pretty easy to tag who they talk to, like ntp.ubuntu.org. So it's pretty easy to go through and create a whitelist to say, hey, if you see any of these patterns, get rid of that. But that beacon activity, that you know, that's what we actually want to go in and look for. There's no real baseline you ever have to create. And I know that's like a really long answer to that. Very simple, quick question, but hopefully that answers it for you. He said, yes, it does answer. Cool. So yeah, as I was saying, this is an example of what is normal. What we're seeing is that uh, we're seeing a plot of the amount of traffic. The, the top graph is showing the number of sessions that were generated each hour over a 24-hour period of time. And what we're seeing is that depending upon the hour, it's anywhere from zero sessions were initiated up to, what's our top here, 12. So okay. not a whole lot. But kind of sporadic. Exactly. It's very sporadic. The bottom graph, what we're seeing is the size of the session that took place over each of these connections. And what we're seeing is the sizes all over the place. Um, so we're seeing, uh, for example, here, we're seeing this one. There was six packets that were probably around, I'm going to take a wild guess and say 1,200 bytes worth of data was sent back and forth. But way over here, we're seeing there was one session that was 13, uh, uh, excuse me, 13,000 bytes were sent. There's no obvious pattern to it. That's okay. really what we're looking for is that if you would, uh, let's say if I was to take half of the graph and blank out the other half, could you guess what the second half of the graph would look like? No. And, you know, clearly now you can't. And the same thing with the bottom. You know, if I only showed you the session size for half of the packets, could you guess at the other half? And again, the answer there is no. 
Okay. So this is a non-beacon, this is normal traffic. Now, if I look at a beacon, I've got two different timelines here. The first one, I'm going in and I'm drawing a little line every 10 minutes over a 24-hour period of time. And you can see that's pretty <laughs> repetitive, yeah. So from like a human standpoint, I can look at it and I can say, I'm not sure how I would describe this, maybe like a, uh, like a picket fence. Yeah. Kind of has that picket fence look there's to it. There's definitely like every hour there's a definite ping that's exactly the same as every sending the same amount of information. Yes. Yes. So we it's so it's like we have a fence that's one size and posts that are, you know, twice the size of it. And it kind of looks that way almost exactly all the way across it. That's an obvious pattern. Now we need to go in and, you know, you've got two choices here. One is you can go in and you can look at a graph of every session to look for this, or you can figure out how to go through and try and find it uh, mathematically, which is what we do at Rita and what I'm going to talk through in a little bit. But I also wanted to show that what, so this red line is the statistical mean. So if we take the statistical mean of all these data points, this is where it ends up. And one of the things you can do as part of a beacon analysis is go in and look for your standard deviation off of the, off of the mean for all of our data. If we think about that here, we've got some fairly big deviations like this spike here, even all of the flat ones along the bottom here, I'm gonna get a constant deviation here. So when I look at it in 10 minute intervals, the standard deviation ends up being actually high. Move this to 60 minute increments instead. So remember we said we're looking at a beacon that's trying to jitter itself. So what we're doing is we're saying, okay, we're just gonna look at a larger cohort. Instead of only looking at 10 minutes, we'll look at 60 minutes. And notice how much the mean average actually touches the top of everything as it goes by. Yes, we still have some variations in the data, but those are outliers. The average across that 24 hour period of time is almost right on target. This would make it really easy to go through in and do this calculation. So again, if I want to do this mathematically, I could go in and I could first take a mean for my data and then look at the standard deviation off of that. If I'm doing small time increments, I'm probably going to miss obvious stuff like this. But when I collect my together, my data together in larger groups, like, a, like an hour or two hours, going through this with statistics actually starts pulling stuff out pretty quickly. So if you were whitelisting stuff, then it would no longer show up on this graph. So the stuff that you knew what it was, it wouldn't be there anymore, right? Right. So let's say, let's say we went through, so let's say this was a session where we were analyzing. So you're going to be a threat hunter now, Sierra. Yay. <laughs> so let's say you were threat hunting this, and let's say you ran across a session that was generating this type of data. You'd look at this and say, wow, yeah, that's obviously uh, a beacon taking place. Now what we need to do is jump in and see, okay, what's causing this? And again, if we saw it was NTP going to a well-known time server, yeah, we don't need to worry about that. So what we would do is exactly as you said, we'd whitelist it. So now when we go through and we do our data analysis tomorrow, this data would not bother showing up anymore. Okay. Make sense? Yeah, that would be amazing. Oh, we're going to have you consulting out your time as a threat hunter before you know. <laughs> so the other thing you can look for is, was the backdoor activated? Yes or no. And this is where things get kind of cool. So this graph up here, I have a single bar that's representing how big, how much data was transferred in each session. 
and how many sessions were there. So here we're seeing this probably about, yeah, we'll call that just under 19,000 sessions that took place over the 24-hour period of time. And as we see, there's only the one bar, right around 404 bytes. So that tells me all of my sessions were exactly the same size. Well, now think about this. If this thing's beaconing home to say, hey, do you have anything for me to do? And the response is no, go back into sleep mode. That session is going to be consistently the same size each time. So that's what I'm seeing here in that first graph. Now imagine what happens when this thing beacons home to say, do you have anything for me to do? And the answer is yes, I want you to do X. You're going to see something more like this graph here on the bottom right. So notice what we have this time. This time we see a lot of packets that are the same session size, but then we have a couple of outliers in the data. This could be because the attacker tried to activate the back door to make sure it's still working. This and is all of those little ones are exactly the same. The ping size is like the same size. Yes. Yep. So I would. Uh, my guess is we're looking at about 48 sessions total that were captured. And this is telling us there was one session that was, we'll call that 100 bytes, another session that was around 200 bytes, another session around 1,100 bytes, and then this one around 2,200. So yeah, there was one session of a bunch of different sizes. This could be four times the back door was activated. It could be multiple sessions as part of what was coming back would need to understand the malware itself and how it works to be able to answer that question. But what this does do for us is, so think about if I get malware on your system and I never end up, well, you need to find the malware, you need to get it off the box, make sure you get you know any backdoor code I had in there and then you're done. Well, if I get the malware on the box and I activate it, now what's your cleanup look like? Well, now you're in full incident handling mode, right? Because maybe that command set was go off and use a Windows-based exploit against my neighbor who's sitting on the next switch port over from me. I might have multiple systems that have been compromised now. So when we get into incident handling mode, usually the first two questions are, was the backdoor activated? Well, by analyzing packet size, we can figure that out, which is awesome. The other thing it tells us is if it was activated, when was it activated? We can actually look at when did I start seeing a session size that was different? That's the first time period I need to go in and zoom in on from there. Making sense? For sure. I hope cool. it's making sense to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel well, like it's going to make sense to you. We are, I already told you, Sierra, we're going to start billing you out as a threat hunter. So, If it makes sense to me, I'm sure it makes sense to everybody. So James <laughs> says, yes, it makes sense. Yay. Awesome. Awesome. So there's a couple of ways you can go about this. That blog entry I referenced, I talked about, I went in and I did it manually because I'm a glutton for punishment. And what I did is I went through and I analyzed what were the time gaps, what were the session sizes. Um, I used T-Shark to go in and do all of that. And then what I did is I used R to go in and generate like the statistical means, the variance, and all, all of the wonderful statistical data so then I could go through and look at it all manually. Luckily, thanks to John Strand, we don't have to do that. Uh, we have this tool, Rita, which is open source, it's free. Go ahead and just grab it and use it. That would be awesome. Has the ability to go in and look for this type of activity on the network fire. So what Rita does, in case you're not aware, is Rita works with Bro. Bro is an awesome network analysis tool, but Bro dumps it into raw logs and to flip through the Bro logs to figure out what there is interesting can be kind of a pain in the backside. Uh, Rita does that for you. 
So you have Bro monitor your network traffic for a day. You take those log files, you dump it into Rita, and we actually have a script that'll automate that whole process for you. And there's a ton of different things you can go in and look for, which might be an indication of something being compromised. The first one we're gonna look at is the show beacons. So in other words, this whole thing we've been talking about to do a beacon analysis, uh, Rita will actually go through and do all of that for you. So when you go through and you capture a day's worth of data, you can go in and you can tell Rita, okay, analyze that data set, or again, you can set it up so it does it automatically for you. And then you can go in and you can say, show me any beacons that might appear in that data set. And what you'll get back is output kind of similar to this. So this score is based on a scale of zero to one on the likelihood of this being a beacon. If it's a 1.0, that's perfect beacon. You can see in the very top line of data here, we're 0.999774. So if we round that, we pretty much end up at 1.0. So what, what sessions on my network look like they're beacon-like activity? Reed is going in and is grabbing that for you. I have the source IP address that was involved, the destination IP address that was using. I can see things like how many sessions took place, how much data went back and forth, uh, what were some of the mean and variable um, values that we went through and calculated. That'll show up in here as well. And what this will do is this will identify all traffic that was beacon-like and it'll show it all to you. So what I did here is I just ran it with the head command to say, show me the top 10. You know, I've got two hours a day allocated to do a beacon analysis or 20 minutes or whatever it happens to be. I can use head to go through and just quickly grab the top hitter. This goes through and gives that to you. So rather than having to do it yourself manually, Rita will go through and do that for you. By the way, the graphs are from AI Hunter, which is the commercial solution. That gives you this data plus the graphs as well, which is kind of cool. We had a question, can you whitelist and read it? No, that's also one of the paid features in the, the paid version, which is AI Hunter. Correct. With that said, I'm gonna tell you a hack. <laughs> you could go in and you could, uh, you can go into Bro and you could tell Bro ignore all traffic that meets this pattern. Okay. And then Bro will not consume it and then Rita will not consume it. So dun, dun, dun. Yes. So Sierra is exactly right. There isn't anything built into Rita yet to do that for you, but there's always a way to hack your way around the system, right? The other way to go after it is just do it within Bro instead. Or as Sierra said, that's a built-in feature as part of AI Hunter as well. So the other thing you can do is you can go in and you can do a DNS analysis. So remember I was mentioning that these fully qualified domain names, when DNS is being used as a covert communication channel, are very long, uh, very convoluted, and it needs to change it every time it does a new query. Well, the result of that is you end up with domains that look like they have a ton of different host names in it. So what this report will show you right off the bat is it'll look at which domains received, uh, which domains contain the most number of hosts from largest to smallest, and it works its way down. Now, some of these are gonna make a lot of sense to you. For example, .com, makes no, no surprise that should be at the top of the list, right? .net, .org, that's where most environments are located. Just about everybody has a .com address. So I'd expect there to be a lot of hosts located within .com. If you stop and think about which .com domains what I expect to be hosting the greatest number of servers that are internet accessible, that brings up some very well-known names like Microsoft, right? Amazon, Akamai, 
Akamai goes through and does CDN services for a number of companies. So they have a, you know, they've got hundred, literally hundreds of boxes out there that they advertise the fully qualified domain name for that you'll connect through as part of grabbing whatever content they're servicing. AWS has tons of servers. Um, if you're using that for services, you're going to see even more of those. So for the domains that you really know, like those three, it's not uncommon to see two or 300 fully qualified domain names sitting in that domain. And then you start getting into the rest of them, like, like parsley.com. Uh, <laughs> we were picking on that one the other night. Um, normal domains you probably never heard of, and they're probably going to have like 10 or 20 hosts in that set. So if you just kind of think about it logically, how many servers would I expect that domain to make to make internet accessible for people to get to and then you go and review with this data or go in and review this data oddballs stick out like a sore thumb so for example dot com had 65,000 domain names within it excuse me fully qualified domain names within it that makes sense hey, one question um james said what's the command to display this output are we still on show beacons or is this a different uh, one Nope, this is a different one. This is the show exploded DNS. Oh, okay. We moved to that one. Thank we moved you. to that one, yes. Sorry. So the first one I was showing was the show beacons. Okay. And then this is show exploded DNS. The next one will be show exploded DNS as well. Okay. Awesome. It's just I'm showing the beginning of the report here. Towards the end of the report will be in the next slide. Cool. So I've got 63,000 hosts within this domain, r-1x.com, who, yeah, come on, whoever, who's ever heard of that one, right? That's a very clear indicator to me that, oh my God, something bad is going on, and it's associated with this r-1x.com domain. In fact, if you look at the next line entry, it's a subdomain within it, you know, that's still pointing to that main domain as being a problem here. And it's more traffic than we saw to .NET. That should never happen. So this is a clear indicator to me. I've got DNS being used as a covert communication channel. It's associated with this domain here. And re if you, as you flip through this output, so again, this was the show exploded DNS. That last screen was the beginning of the output. This is more towards the end. I can actually go in and see what was queried for. I mean, look at some of these host names. This makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. If you're looking at it saying, hmm, I see 2020 a lot, maybe I'll match on that pattern and catch it that way. That's just this particular data set. Uh, your malware may vary. So again, it's really hard to pattern match on. You really need to go in and start you know, looking at where are the most number of domains. And that's it for this. Um, I didn't want to explode people's brains too much, although I am fully open to diving into this deeper if you'd like. Uh, we do have um, a number of uh, a number of data ninjas on staff. Uh, one of which is much better at statistics stuff than I. If you folks wanted to see a webcast on that, would be happy to do it. If you want to see a webcast on additional tools for doing this type of thing, more than happy to do that. Basically, let us know what's going to make these to be helpful. It's a new field. We need to get people up to speed on how to do this as a technique. There's not a lot of training out there today. Uh, we want to help as much as we can. In the notes, or even better, if you could drop an email or hit us on Twitter and say, hey, you know what would be awesome? If you could teach us this aspect of threat hunting, or if you could talk about that aspect of threat hunting. If it's something quick, easy, happy to just respond over email or Twitter. If it's something a little more in-depth, more than happy to do a blog entry. If it's something really in-depth, we'll do another one of these webcasts. Yeah.
Um, so we have some comments and questions. Um, Dale said that it was mind blasting. So um, I thought it was <laughs> awesome. a really good explanation. So thank you for that. Jonathan said, math is hard. So yes, please, let's go down the rabbit hole. So <laughs> we'll get some people on a math, mathy statistics webcast. Alex said, Rita works with Security Onion, might want to let people know who used yes. that IDS. So yes. thank you for that um, comment, Alex. I, I, I'm not sure if the copy of Rita on Security Onion is the latest and greatest. Um, if it's not, you may want to update. Uh, especially, actually, not just now, but we've got some updates coming out soon that, uh, oh my God, uh, again, we got data ninjas. Uh, we also got programming ninjas. Uh, some of the- We have all the ninjas. <laughs> yes, we've got all the ninjas in our dojo. Data sets with, with millions and millions of entries used to take us like five minutes to go through. They've got it down to like 10 seconds. It's like, oh my God. Uh, they've just been optimizing the heck out of this thing. So uh, keep an eye out for that. Over the next couple of weeks, you're going to see some new versions of Rita coming down that uh, it's mostly performance improvements. But if there's features folks want to see tossed in, yeah, uh, two links at the bottom. Just give us a heads up. Let us know. Cool. Um, and Matthew says he uses Stack Onion and it's super awesome. So he's, his, yeah. his quote was, it's sick. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's a lot of cool tools there to work with. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and it's one of those rabbit holes where like, oh my God, it could take you forever to learn everything. So Wayne had a question. Do you see a lot of antivirus using DNS to query checksums, false positives? You can end up with that, not just through DNS, but even doing reverse lookups on IP addresses. Uh, we've seen situations where so with AI Hunter, one of the first things we do is we whitelist all the root name servers. And the reason for that is antivirus software and security software in general, that every time it sees an IP, it immediately wants to do a reverse lookup. If you have a busy network, oh yeah, that's gonna look like a beacon. So you might run into that type of thing on occasion, but if you do, once you identify what it is, whitelist it, problem solve. If you wanna think about it from a mindset, you don't really want to try and go straight after the interesting stuff. The idea is to go through and say, here's the stuff I understand and I know it's okay. Let me get that out of the way so that I have a smaller data set to work with so I'm more likely to actually identify the interesting stuff. And even the beacon analysis, we're kind of doing that because what uh, our first pass in Rita, we go through and say anything that's not obviously a beacon, Get it out of the way. Don't even bother <laughs> taking a look at it anymore. And now what's left is the interesting stuff. So. Right. Okay. So then we have a question from Steven. He says, besides the graphs and the whitelisting, what other advantages does AI Hunter have over Rita? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a bunch it's of different pretty. tools. Yeah, it is pretty. <laughs> uh, there's a bunch of different tools in there. Um, a some of them are within Rita. Probably one of my favorites is the deep dive module. The deep dive module is a module we have where you can put in an internal IP address and just everything you would, could ever want to know about that thing in one spot. So you'll get th back things like how many outbound connections did it make in the course of the day? How many bytes went back and forth? Did we see any beacons? Did we see any scan-like activity? Um, you get a nice pretty graph that kind of shows everything it connected out to. You can click and zoom in on things. You can see uh, header information from all the unique sessions that took place. Uh, so it's, it isn't data that you couldn't get out of Bro on your own. 
but it gives you a real simple to use interface to go and kind of click your way through it. One of our uh, goals with AI Hunter, and this has been me kind of, that this is like a uh, passion to me, is I want this so that junior analysts can use it. In other words, when you look at, when you look at this, First, you're going to be able to get into the Linux command line, and you need to kind of know what you're doing to really make good use of this data. Absolutely nothing wrong with that, and that's why we made this an open source product. But our goal with AI Hunter is a little bit different. It is more along the lines of, I want a junior analyst to be able to go through and do that first pass to say, yeah, get all this stuff out of the way. None of this is interesting. But here's some interesting stuff maybe I need to pull somebody senior in on. Right now, threat hunting is a... Uh, I would argue it's probably one of the more difficult disciplines out there right now. Just because it's new, there's not a lot of training, not a whole lot of people know how to do it really well. So the more we can simplify that and put it in the hands of more people, the easier it's going to be to make sure that uh, fewer and fewer of us are getting our networks owned. And when they do, we're catching it quickly and getting them back out again. Awesome. Thomas had a question. He wanted to know how tool agnostic Rita was, um, especially environments that have mixed open source and commercial tools. I thought that that was kind of like the beauty of beacon analysis, right? That Rita kind of picks it all up. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, as far as like what gets analyzed, uh, Rita will analyze anything. All the things. Yeah, all the th yes, all the Internet of Things. <laughs> We're not pushing, um, you know, agents out or any. There's, there's nothing like that going on. We're just looking at the raw traffic. So if you have an Atari 7800 um, and you've IP enabled that and you've created a web server cartridge that you can plug in um, and that gets compromised and oh my God, I want to meet the person that can not only a build <laughs> that but b compromise it um, and that starts beaconing out. Yeah, we'll catch that too. Awesome. So then there's some specific, if you want more information about Rita, you can go to the Black Hills Information Security website and it's under projects and look for that. There's a whole webcast that John did about Rita if you want to go deeper into that. Wayne had a question. Do you allow sharing of whitelists in AI Hunter? Yeah, oh, okay. yes, we do. Absolutely. Okay. So, um, and, and in fact, that was kind of a requirement because we wanted to make sure that two different people doing a threat hunt could have the same baseline to start off of and actually right. work together on it. Because you can not only build the whitelist within AI Hunter, uh, a simple text editor, and you can change them outside of AI Hunter as well. Okay. Um, and then Dale had a comment. He said the deep dive only works currently on outbound connections, not inbound. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. Okay. All right. Um, although I know there's an issue ticket to fix that. I'd have to check to see if that's been done already or not. But I know okay. that they, I, I know it is an issue ticket. I know who it's been assigned to. I just don't know if they've completed that task yet. And then does AI Hunter work with Correlates Bro hardware appliances? Yes, they do. In fact, we love those guys. In fact, that's <laughs> who we uh, kind of recommend to people once they start pushing a gigabit or more. Uh, Bro is great. But when you start trying to tweak it for performance, I mean, if you think about what's going on, we want to grab three packet going by, read it in a bus, yeah, and write it out to disk. That's really intensive. Core Light folks have some great high-end appliances that go all the way up to like 25 gig, and we'll work with that happily. 
Awesome. Um, and then Scott had a question. He says, it's probably not worth answering because it's a noob question, but I think it's important that we like even answer the questions that you feel like are too basic. Um, oh, absolutely. I'm here. I'm here. So if you can't be more basic than me, is there any recommendations regarding whitelisting? Some products do not have the IPs they communicate with published and use a cloud provider like AWS. We look up that IP and all we find is the AWS or other cloud provider. So trying to determine if it's okay can be interesting. Yeah. So um, to just segue back to the what do you get with AI Hunter thing. So that is one of the things we do differently with AI Hunter is we actually look at DNS queries when they go out. And the fully qualified domain name we report is based on that A record or quad A record query, meaning that if I do a reverse lookup on an IP address and it tells me it's in AWS, I get the generic host name that Amazon creates for AWS. If your user looked at evilsystem.willcompromiseyou.com, and that's what brought them to that email address. That's actually the fully qualified domain name we show you in the interface that they were trying to get to. Uh, so with that said, yeah, we we not only let uh, you whitelist based on IP, you can do it on domain, you can do it on autonomous system number. Yet we, we're not doing it based on DNS yet. Um, I haven't seen any, I have to go back and check my notes, but I don't think we've had a customer ask for that yet. Uh, if we did, it actually wouldn't be that hard to include in. Cool. Well, that looks like it wraps it up for questions. And also, if you would like to see more about AI Hunter, you can go to the Active Countermeasures website, activecountermeasures.com, and book a demo with Chris, with Chris himself. Ooh. So it's super awesome. <laughs> so hopefully, you guys, if you haven't already checked that out, we it looked like we had a lot of people actually that are already using it on this. But if you haven't checked it out, go check that out. It's super neat. I'm sure as you saw from this amazing webcast. But thank you so much for being on, you guys. And Thank you, Chris, for your great presentation. Happy um, to. If you have any more questions, be sure to email chris at activecountermeasures.com. So thank you. Have a great week. Bye. Thank you, folks. I just wanted to say a quick thank you to all of you who attend our webcast live and also those who listen later and watch on our YouTube channel. We couldn't build this community without you, and you really make this a special thing that we're doing. Thank you. First time without John, and I know he's in Chicago speaking right now, so we can say all sorts of nasty things about him, and so long as we cut it out in post-production, he'll never know.